I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 1. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have weekly conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a content creator, developer, project manager, and a certified Contentful professional. Today, I'm having a conversation with Contentful's developer evangelist, Amelia Winger Bearskin, all about what developers need to know to create web experiences with Contentful. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, blog articles, or to register for our meetup, all focus on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.themarcelolewin.com. That's T-H-E-M-A-R-C-E-L-O-L-E-W-I-N.com. All right, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here. You're our first guest, so this is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really excited that we can have a podcast like this for our community. Well, why don't we get started by um, you giving us a background about yourself. Tell us a little bit what your background is, how you got to Contentful, and all of that stuff. Sure, absolutely. Well, I've been programming computers since I was small. My dad bought me a Commodore 64 when I was five years old because I told him I wanted to be an artist. And he said, in the future, all art will be made with computers. So learn to program your art. So I did. And I made applications, designs and games and music. And I really loved coding. And I've always worked in creative applications of computer programming, whether it's for animation, graphics, web design, web development, virtual reality, little flash games and things like that, um, augmented reality. Uh, but I always try to really make creative things with new technologies. I was a professor of art and visual technology, teaching web development and new emerging technologies at Vanderbilt University. And I also went to NYU's ITP program, which we like to call the Center for Recently Possible, <laughs> which is a really fun and exciting place where I met a lot of awesome developers and creative people. And I love seeing what's on the horizon and making cool things with friends. That's awesome. You got a really cool background and it's very similar to mine because my first computer was actually the Commodore VIC-20. Then I upgraded to the Commodore 64 and I did basic program in there. So that's how I got into computers as well. And then, of course, I got into VR and you're into VR. I yeah. had, used to have a VR podcast before. So it's interesting how our lives are sort of parallel in that aspect. Absolutely. Such a fun medium. I, I really love being in the VR community. Oh, it's, totally. It's been really inspiring. Yeah. Totally. But that's for another conversation we'll leave for later. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so what brought you to Contentful? When I was at ITP, I started this hackathon called the Stupid Hackathon, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. And my really dear friend, Sam Agnew, would always sponsor it. First when he was in one company and then when he was with another, which is Twilio, where he is now, he was the first developer of evangelist I ever met. And he always encouraged me to consider being in DevRel since I was always making cool developer meetups or hackathons or trying to organize people and make fun things. So me and Sam were in a fellowship program in uh, New York City when we were in school called Hack NY, which was founded by Chris Wiggins and Evan Korth, which the fellowship, you interned at startups in the day, you hacked on solo projects on the weekends, and we started our own startups at night under the mentorship of other founders in the New York City tech scene. Through this program, I also met Shai Rupert in Hack NY, and he later became the first developer evangelist in New York City for Contentful. So he was the one who recruited me and helped me learn about DevRel in my first DevRel job here at Contentful. And I'm really lucky to have such great mentors and friends in the DevRel space. That's pretty cool. Now, why don't you give us an overview of Contentful itself 
from a developer's perspective, right? We all know it's what they call in the industry a headless CMS, but I know you guys are more focused on actually being more of a content framework than a headless CMS. But from a developer's perspective, what does that all mean? Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of terms, right? People throw around headless CMS or content platform or content infrastructure. But, and I don't always assume that everyone knows what even a CMS is because a lot of times when I'm going to conferences, I'll have developers who've been developing in partnership with CMSs for a long time. And they'll ask that basic question of like, what even is a CMS? And which is totally a fair question. You know, it's a content management system. And for us at Contemple, it's API first. So what that means is that as a developer, you can decide how you want to model content interfaces for your clients or other non-technical team members to interact with. The way that Contemple approaches this is through a practice we call content modeling. So you can say, okay, so we're going to put this text block here, a different kind of text block here, and this is where we're going to serve it up some images, and then over here, anything else could be video embedded, for instance. And your team doesn't have to know anything else, text, text, image, video, great, got it. They can focus on what they do best, which is to write and create great content and generally not trying to tweak the layout on a WYSIWYG interface. All the data management and changes on how the content will be served, all that can be done by developers. This can be accomplished on the command line with our SDK. So if you'd like to iterate or change then you can do that in a migration script programmatically, again, entirely in code. So it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of testing out different features you may want to implement by separating the content from the code or the presentation layer from the code. Then we can provide development teams with really clean, logical means of accessing content and slotting it into configurations. And speaking of the content model, what I find interesting, it's almost like designing a database because you really have to look at your structure, your content that you're trying to model or your business and model it like a database. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I think from the developer perspective, it's very similar to creating your data infrastructure or your database, right? The difference is you're assuming that non-technical people are also going to be interacting with this database, which is something that maybe you don't do with other databases. You might be the only person that needs to know how to access it, how to organize it. And I don't mean the only person, obviously your whole technical team as well, but people with similar skill set will need to access it. The difference is, is you need to be a little bit more collaborative when you think of designing it, because you need to keep in mind that there's going to be non-technical people that also need to understand how this architecture works. You can really get a lot done by just talking to them and asking them what their needs are, what their workflow is, so that you design maybe descriptions or formats or, or systems that are really easy for them to use and then also logically make sense for you and the other developers on your team. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. One of the interesting things that I found out is we're implementing this where I work is when you're building the content model and we're to get more into the details on that. Actually, my first meetup is going to be on building content models is looking at non-visible content. How do you model that? So for example, SEO metadata, right? But beyond that, like we're trying to model knowledge base articles and how do we model metadata for that knowledge base article so it can map to fields in the app so then we can pull information. Like for example, if we release a brand new feature and we write about that feature, how do we, what kind of metadata can we model? in Contentful. So from the app side, we can just pull that, hey, there's this new feature and here's the information about it. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's the way in which you allow 
everyone on your team to have the kind of superpowers you can have with data so that even if someone doesn't understand necessarily or need to understand how that metadata is transferred and shared with other teams, they do know how to enter the key tags. They can still be able to be part of that system, which is right. And I think that's why it's really important when you do go into content modeling that not only you have the business people there, which I think it's very important, right? But it's also having the developers or more than a developer, an architect that can see the big picture can understand what other kinds of metadata modeling you need to insert in there. So that way you cover all the bases. Absolutely. I think it really is about collaboration. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the APIs. You guys offer four APIs, a delivery API, a uh, preview API, an image API, and a content management API. Can you talk about each of those and what that means for developers? Sure. So our content delivery API is used to retrieve published content and display it on your application. The content management API is used to create or update your content. And that's something that you can do to also manage and model your content models. A content preview API is used to retrieve content that's still unpublished. And our images API is used to retrieve and apply transformations to images. So you could make round edges on your images. You could change the size for different content. You could change the focus point in a particular area to do auto cropping. And then we also do have a GraphQL content API, which is used to retrieve both published and unpublished content using GraphQL. With the GraphQL API that you guys offer, that's basically right now read-only. You can't do mutations on it. You can only do queries. Do you guys have any plans of allowing uh, mutations through GraphQL or no plans yet? Not any plans currently. Um, You know, we didn't have GraphQL from the beginning, but we were really interested in it, especially since it got a lot of love from the Android and uh, mobile development community. So I think we're primarily having it in read and preview only at this point. And so we're prioritizing that now. I do hope more features get rolled out, but yeah, I don't know right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. That's, yeah. that's a fair answer. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading up on it. It seems like GraphQL API is actually accessing the RESTful API. So instead of going directly, so I'm assuming in the future, you guys may go directly, I guess, and skip that. Yeah, I don't have any more details. Like No, no, that's fine. Publishing. I understand. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Right. All you have to kill me and all the people that are listening. So I get it. I get it. No worries. So you have the four APIs, which you've explained, but there's also the SDKs. So explain the difference between accessing content through the API or accessing it through the SDKs. What are the difference and what kind of SDKs do you offer? Our main SDKs that we have, which have tutorials, demos, and sample apps um, that are up on our website, it's essentially anything that speaks HTTP and JSON through a REST API. Our main eight ones that we support are JavaScript, PHP, Android, iOS, Java, Python, Ruby, and .NET. So one of the things that I know sometimes with the SDKs a little bit limited, right, is if you don't have a language that you support currently, we would have to use our own language and then use the API directly for that. So one of the things that I found is, for example, with the SDK, I wanted to create tasks and you didn't offer a task method right now. So you guys offer this raw request method in the SDK that allows me to create it through just basically the API directly. So I think sometimes developers, when they look at, should I use the API directly or use the SDK, they're going to have to figure out first, do you have an SDK that supports the language they want? And then second, 
do you offer all the features of the API in that SDK? If not, then they may have to go to the API directly. Just to clarify that for developers in the future. Yeah, thank you. That's a great explanation. So you guys recommend three types of frameworks for creating the front end. So we spoke about the back end, right? And then you can do delivery into omni-channel, right? So you can deliver into various devices, whatever that device may be, whether it's the computer, whether it's Alexa, it doesn't matter what it is, right? But from a web development perspective, you guys suggest three types of frameworks. Can you cover what those frameworks are and the main difference between them? Yeah, absolutely. We have dynamic on server, dynamic on device, and static site generators, as you've mentioned. Um, so I can talk about a single page application first, since that's the simplest possible architecture, where applications retrieve content directly from our API. You can call it SPA for short, as a nod to single page web apps, which run entirely in the browser. But the pattern can be employed just as well as any delivery channel that's able to execute code. This includes websites and, as you mentioned, all sorts of native applications. We recommend using SPA whenever possible. It's a combination of simplicity, availability, uh, content velocity, um, and it makes it quick to develop and easy to maintain. Um, and SPA can be written, in, as you mentioned, any language that can run HTTP requests. And we have provided uh, SDKs for many of the more common ones. A common question we get asked about is security and a CDA token if it is present in the client code and how do we keep it safe? The short answer is that we don't because the CDA only allows reading, not writing, and content and all content is stored in Contemple, we assume it to be public. There's usually no need to keep the token hidden. But if your use case absolutely calls for end user access control, you can check out our backend documentation as well to look at other types of architecture. The performance and cost can be served really, really fast and that's what people like a lot of times about SPAs. You can host your static HTML and JS files and services like Amazon S3 and serve them through CDN and let Contemple serve dynamic content. And it's an inexpensive way to withstand arbitrary high traffic spikes. Native apps, whether it's mobile, tablet, smartwatch, connected car, a smart TV, maybe AR, VR. <laughs> um, as long as they're online, Contemple can serve up content directly on them. And with no part of the infrastructure that's hosted by you, you can have fixed costs. It can be extremely low. So a great feature of the single page application is how quickly content changes and how fast they're propagated to the front end. A lot of people like that it doesn't have any extra steps and in a few seconds you can have new or updated content to service within your apps. A lot of people like it for search engine optimization. Google in particular eventually sends crawlers running through headless browsers capable of that range of interaction. And so if SEO is a priority or a concern for your content, then essentially it's render server side and it can still be done using the SPA architecture. Next, we have the backend to front end, which is essentially a single page application, but with a proxy between your application and Contemple. The extra step means that your servers need to handle all of the traffic and end users will face additional latency. So for that reason, we don't normally recommend backend for front end there, but there are definitely a few exceptions. Maybe one, if you need to control end users access to content within a single space. Also, if you need to enrich an API that already exists. If your use case falls under one of those and you can live with the latency drawbacks, then the back end for front end can work you. Since the idea is to aggregate data from multiple sources, using a non-blocking language like JavaScript in the backend is recommended. That way you can call all services, APIs, databases in parallel and mitigate latency losses. But if you decide to mitigate latency by caching Contemple data, we recommend adopting a single page policy with a short TTL. If your needs require more sophisticated cache expiration policies, it might be a sign that another architecture is in order. You could consider a single page application or maybe be static. 
There's no major access to security concerns with the backend for front end. Your audience has no access to any of your API tokens since they'll be safely inside a backend server under your control. Summarize, you put a CDN in front of the backend, uh, you locally cache data only from certain uh, services. You can mix those two or not cache anything. As long as you don't cache, don't cache for long, or trigger cache expiration with webhooks, this architecture supports high content velocity scenarios. It's not as responsive as a single page application architecture, but short refresh times can still be achieved. And then we have lastly, static architecture. In static architecture, views are rendered only once and then can be served as static HTML. It brings performance, availability, and cost benefits, but it's a complex architecture and it doesn't handle high content velocities as well as others. Pre-rendered content is usually HTML. It's typically served from a static file host such as Amazon S3, and it can have a CDN on top for additional availability and cost benefits. Static architecture needs a build system to be in place, a strategy to trigger builds, and a mechanism to upload the resulting HTML files. Each component uh, can be implemented in a number of ways. So one use case is a static website, ideal for high traffic scenarios, such as supporting marketing campaigns with landing pages or websites. You have something that where it triggers the build, and you decide when a build should run in the first step. Conceptually, it should follow a content change. A lot of people in Contempt will do when you've made a change to content or maybe a content model. In particular, if that's not always the case, you can have a manual trigger. Uh, this is the simplest possible approach. The biggest downside to this is that it requires your editors or marketers or HR managers to have knowledge of another tool or to be dependent on IT to run the builds for them. So an example would be like a button in the build systems UI or a Slack you know, publish command or a console script executed by IT. A scheduled trigger would simply be run periodically at known intervals. This approach is very predictable. If you know your builds run on top of every hour, for instance, and you've got a good idea of when a content change would make it into production. So you could use a scheduler such as Celery or something like that. Automatic triggers, I really like these. You use webhooks. Builds can be triggered automatically when certain events take place. This method approaches the ideal of building only when necessary, but it can be tricky to get right. The typical pitfall here is building everything whenever a single page entry is published. Because entries are published individually, this can lead to a high number of build requests to queue up. In real life, this approach works well for small marketing websites with low content velocity, where it's fine to build everything in rapid pace. If it's a purely automatic trigger, it likely it might clog a build pipeline, leaving your editor confused saying, okay, you know, I published this, where is it? And so it's possible to combine the two approaches into Contemple's user interface. So a special content type could be used to declare releases. So you don't have to necessarily make it every change, but just a specific content type that would have other content types underneath it. Whether a new release entry is created, a webhook uh, is listening for that and can trigger the build. The process of generating static HTML is well understood by most developers. <laughs> you simply take a template, you apply content to it, and out comes the HTML file. There are plenty of open source static site generators that we have integrations for a few of them, like Jekyll, Middleman, Roots, uh, YM, and many more, actually. you know, We also have, you could use automation systems that can manage the whole process from listening to the build triggers handling the static site generator run and uploading the resulting HTML. Uh, some example of those are like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, CI, CircleCI, CodeShip. Setting up continuous integration is its own <laughs> podcast, but um, you'll definitely find plenty of information on, on our documentation concerning that. 
once your SSG finishes, you'd most likely have a collection of directories with the HTML files. The build system should package those into an artifact, which then can be as simple as a zip file. Then this needs to be uploaded to a web host, unpacked, and made available to serve web requests. And there are many options, but a couple of processes, if you go to our documentation, we have one around you know, Amazon's S3, but you could also use, if you want to configure your CDN on top of S3 to save hosting costs, you, know, you could also use CloudFront, which integrates. You could also use services like Netlify that aim to provide complete hosting and have a lot of great integrations with our webhooks. So it's, it's definitely options to consider. And to add to the SSG framework that we're looking into right now is having to do like three or four times a day publish, but then also having an emergency button accessible only, let's say, to an admin that if somebody needs to publish quickly, they can just say, hey, just can you publish it right away and just press the button and have it queued up immediately. But in general, like you said, if you do it on every entry that's published and you have five or six content creators all day long doing this, it's gonna break that pipeline. Or at least it's gonna back it up tremendously. But if you do it where it's only three or four times a day automatically, but with an emergency override only to certain people, then at least you can have the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. You wanna make sure you're building trust with your editors so that they're, we've all heard them say, this is broken. And you're like, well, okay, but there's a lot of requests right now. So yeah, it's definitely a process of finding out who are the people that you can give those permissions to. and, And luckily you can do that already with a content model too, if you want. Well, and if you also give them a preview of the content, if you have a preview link for the content, then they don't have to worry so much about when it's going to get published, unless of course it's an emergency because it's something that they wrote that's really bad. But, um, (laughs) well, I meant like, you know, an error or whatever, right? But if they have the preview and they're worried about what is this going to look like, of course you want to have preview links they can see and then they don't have to worry about it. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So why don't we switch gears a little bit into environments. Explain what are environments and contentful and how do you create those? You have an environment. It's a way in which you can create a sandbox or a testing site so that you can test out, change to your content model or to content. The best way of thinking about it is if you also pair it with our migration scripts. So I've had people ask me, the UI is great. Am I going to have to go into the UI in order to change content model? And what if I need to change hundreds of entries or hundreds of content models? And the great thing is you can do that with migration scripts. So again, you're doing it in code in the command line. Once you're using migration scripts, then environments can be really powerful because you can test your migration script changes in an environment. Once that tests, you can actually change the alias so that the environment that you've tested against can then become the master. So it's not quite the same as maybe like a GitHub workflow, but it mirrors the concept of being able to have a test and a sandbox environment. And then it's good to just kind of, once you're done with your other environments, you can erase them or you can easily clone them. Um, That's kind of the best practice that I've seen is when people are using it just as a sandbox and a test once it's working, moving that back up so that it becomes the master alias and then just deleting the old one. Aliases, uh, touching on that, are very cool because like you just said, you create an alias to production, then duplicate production as a staging, do all your code changes there, your content model changes there. Then if everything works, you can migrate all the content from production to staging and then change the alias to staging and boom, now you're in production. Absolutely. Yeah, very powerful stuff. Okay, cool. Well, Amelia, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you one last question, which is about the app framework. Can you explain what that is? The Contemple app framework is three years of hard work and focus on making Contemple an extensible and cloud-native content platform available to developers. So starting with their introduction back in 2016, we had UI extensions, which gave 
developers tools to create custom editing experiences for their team. And we were really amazed at what people came out with. Some people really want a WYSIWYG editor, and you couldn't do that without sort of breaking that code and presentation layer that we were talking about earlier. And people were able to do that with UI extensions. There were great things people were doing with innovative ways of preview. There was Apple Music integrations. You know, we got really inspired and wanted to expand the UI extension SDK to allow for dialogue extensions, whole entry extensions, sidebar extensions. And while the UI gave developers and partners the freedom to customize their contemporal editing experience and integrate external services, we realized that the UI extensions created some challenge with governance and deployment. So we want to be able to share UI extensions across spaces with an organization or sharing them with the community. It can be cumbersome and extensions once installed don't automatically update with any bug fixes or improvements made by the original developer. So our answer to these issues is the app framework. Apps are powered by Contemplal app framework can be shared across spaces, which is great. And so if you build something that's really solving a problem for your team and another team in your company has the same problem, they can you can use the same app, which is really important. So every Everything you've learned about developing the UI extensions still applies to our apps, but there are some key differences. Apps implement their own configuration screen for easier installation and configuration. Apps manage their own state and parameters, and apps are defined on the organization level, and, and they're installed into spaces to enable sharing them easily across the space. So everything else about the apps is the same with our UI extensions. You're still going to use the same SDK, and you can still create contemplative extension in order to create a scaffolding to use the Forma 36 that we have to make sure that your app visually fits in with the contemporal style of the app. But you're also going to be able to add the app config location to manage the configuration and to create an app definition in your organization. And the Forma 36, just to be clear, it's a design system, basically. So when you are creating that app that will run inside of the contentful web app, it'll look just like all the contentful UI elements. Absolutely. And I'm assuming those are React components? That's right. Okay, cool. All right, Amelia, well, I really appreciate your time you took today to explain Contentful, and I was very happy that you were my first guest here on the podcast. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really wonderful conversation, and I'm really excited to listen to the rest of the episodes you have on this podcast. Thank you so much for putting it together. I'm really excited. Many more to come. It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give your Twitter, email, whatever you want? Yeah, absolutely. So you can reach me at Amelia, A-M-E-L-I-A, at Contentful.com. And I'm also on the Contentful community Slack. My uh, handle is Amelia WB. So that's probably the best places to reach me. I do have Twitter and all those other things, but I'm always on the Contentful community Slack and email. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Amelia. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.themarcellalewin.com. That's T-H-E-M-A-R-C-E-L-O-L-E-W-I-N.com for more podcast episodes like this one, tutorials, blog articles, and much more, all focus on Contentful and related technologies. So until the next episode, I'm Marcella Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Mm-hmm.